Oh, yay. Oh, yay. This is SCOTUS Talk, a nonpartisan podcast about the Supreme Court for lawyers and non-lawyers alike. Brought to you by SCOTUS Blog. Welcome to SCOTUS Talk. I'm Amy Howe. Thanks for joining us. Today, we are continuing our SCOTUS Spotlight, our series of interviews with lawyers who argue regularly before the Supreme Court. Our guest today has argued 35 cases before the justices, including three in the 2021-2022 term. We're delighted to have Canon Shanmugam here today. Canon, thanks so much for joining us. It's great to be with you, Amy. So you've argued 35 cases in the Supreme Court and many more than that in the federal courts of appeals, all 13 of them, and state courts. How does your approach to arguing in the Supreme Court differ from when you're arguing in the courts of appeals? Well, in one sense, Amy, it's the same because the fundamental goal of any oral advocate is to answer the questions to the best of your ability. And whenever you're in an appellate court, whether it's the Supreme Court or the Court of Appeals, what you're trying to do is to convince the court to accept your view of the law and to rule in your client's favor. So the fundamental task is very similar. But I think there are some pretty significant differences. I mean, one of them is that Court of Appeals arguments are actually nowadays often a lot shorter because Courts of Appeals hear many more cases than the Supreme Court does. Um, Courts of Appeals often will hear as many as 15 or 20 oral arguments in a week, whereas the Supreme Court, you know, rarely hears more than five or six. And so, you know, you're arguing to a court that has a, a lot more on its plate when you're arguing in a Court of Appeals. Um, You're often arguing cases where there are multiple legal issues and where there is some degree of factual complexity, which in some ways makes preparing for Court of Appeals arguments different from preparing for Supreme Court arguments. And uh, you're also arguing to a court that's in a different position in the hierarchy. You know, the Supreme Court is bound only by its own precedent. And as we all know, the Supreme Court has the ability to revisit that if it wants to, whereas lower courts, I think, are keenly aware both of their own precedent, but obviously of precedent from the Supreme Court. And so the types of arguments you make at the Court of Appeals level are very different from those at the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court is really all about first principles, and that's very rarely true when you're in a lower court. So you've been arguing before the court now for almost 20 years, I think. Has your approach changed either as you learn or because the courts changed? And in particular, do you do anything differently now as a lawyer in private practice than you did when you were in the SG's office? Well, thanks for making me feel old, Amy. Um, well, I, was, I remember your first argument, so <laughs> that makes us both old. Well, the good news is that I do too, and I'm sure we'll talk about that. But beyond that, I mean, I think the answer is actually not as much as you might think. Like many Supreme Court advocates, I really got my start in the Solicitor General's office. But I think unlike a lot of Supreme Court advocates, I've done the vast majority of those 35 arguments now in private practice. And I think what I would say is that there is, you know, one lesson that I took from the SG's office. You know, the SG's office is a wonderful institution. It really prides itself on going above and beyond in its candor with the court, in being ruthlessly accurate and candid about the state of the law, uh, you know, not attempting to sort of hide the ball in any way. And, And I've really tried to take that lesson into private practice. I think the most effective advocacy before the Supreme Court is when an advocate stands up and says, look, I recognize that precedent X might seem to cut in the other direction or that the other side has these legitimate arguments, but yet you should rule in our favor nonetheless. And I think that that's how the SG's office goes about the task of arguing before the court. And I've really tried to take that with me uh, in my now 
uh, uh, almost 15 years in private practice. The other thing that's changed recently is that the arguments have gotten a lot longer since the court first was doing telephone arguments during COVID and now with the hybrid approach that they adopted once they returned to the courtroom. So your portion of an argument in the most recent term in Oklahoma versus Castro Huerta, in which the court eventually agreed with you that both states and the federal government can prosecute crimes committed by non-Indians in Indian country. You were up there for over 70 minutes just to start before, before your rebuttal. Does that change how you think about an argument? I don't think it really changes the preparation. The fundamental mechanics of the preparation are the same, and they would be the same even if the court decided to have five-minute oral arguments rather than hour-long oral arguments. It definitely changes the feel of the oral argument. And I would say that having argued now three cases in this new format, it feels much more leisurely. It feels as if the advocate has the opportunity to give a much fuller answer. It certainly feels as if the justices have more of a sort of sense of relaxation about not feeling like they have to force their questions in and to interrupt the advocate. And just on a personal level, I think that's nice because one of the frustrations as an advocate is coming out of an oral argument and feeling as if you haven't been able to get all of the key points out and on the table. And this new format, I think, is, is really conducive to lawyers doing that. So tell us, since we've mentioned it, tell us about your first oral argument. Well, uh, my first oral argument, as you say, Amy, was almost 20 years ago. It was in the Solicitor General's office. I was a very green young lawyer in that office. I think I had had all of one argument in a court before I stood up in the Supreme Court in a case called Mueller versus Mina. It was a sort of deceptively straightforward Fourth Amendment case. It involved the question of whether uh, the police had used excessive force when they detained the occupants of a house in handcuffs while executing a search warrant. And the Supreme Court ultimately agreed uh, with the position that we were taking as an amicus on behalf of the United States that there was no Fourth Amendment violation. But I think what was really interesting about this oral argument was that we were an amicus supporting the officers in the case who had been sued by the occupants of the house. So this Fourth Amendment issue was coming up in the context of a Section 1983 action. And so rather than the state being a party, the officers were a party. And uh, Carter Phillips, the, the longtime dean of the Supreme Court bar, was representing the officers. He got up and argued first and, and as usual, was very effective. And, and I got up and it felt like the argument was going very well. And then about a minute into the oral argument, I believe it was either Justice Stevens or Justice Souter, both of them ended up being very involved in this line of questioning, who started asking questions about um, the way the juries are instructed in Section 1983 cases involving the Fourth Amendment. And this was an issue that had not been addressed at all in any of the briefing. And so I ended up spending probably eight of my 10 minutes at the oral argument answering questions on an issue that really hadn't come up in the briefing. It really hadn't come up in the moots. Perhaps because it was my first oral argument, I had come across a footnote in an earlier government brief where the government had sort of staked out its position on some of these issues. But um, the oral argument ended up being like totally not what I had prepared for. And, and of course, none of this ended up getting addressed in the court's opinion either. I think it was just such a straightforward case that frankly, the court was just interested in this kind of 
question of, of what you tell juries uh, uh, in a case involving the Fourth Amendment. But boy, it was a great sort of lesson in Supreme Court advocacy and advocacy more generally, which is that sometimes you have to expect the unexpected. Yeah, you're putting such a positive spin on it. That just sounds like a nightmare for advocates at any point, but especially when it's your first one. It was, you know, thankfully, that has not happened to me again, where a Supreme Court argument has gone off on a completely tangential issue. Um, but, you know, you do have to sort of realize that sometimes that happens and there's nothing you can do about it other than to try to answer the questions to the best of your ability. I imagine it was, I don't know, was it, was it particularly nerve wracking when you're standing there as the representative of the, the United States? And you can't, you can't really sort of freelance here. Yeah, I mean, it was really just a fortuitous thing that I had seen this footnote, I think, in the government's earlier brief in Saucier versus Katz, if I'm rem remembering correctly, where the government had actually taken a position. Because otherwise, boy, when you're representing the United States, it's really dangerous to make representations about what the government's position is if you don't have some degree of confidence that you're right about that. Right. <laughs> I can picture Michael Dreamin like scribbling. <laughs> and so actually this kind of goes to my next question, which is sort of walk us through your preparation as you're getting ready for the oral argument. You know, obviously you're, you're reading some of the, the briefs from earlier related cases, but how many moot courts do you do? Uh, do you practice your answers to certain questions? I don't think there's anything particularly unusual about my preparation. I, I really try to carve out, you know, at least two or three weeks of relatively uninterrupted time to prepare. That's a very hard thing to do, yeah. I think particularly when you're in private practice, but that's at least the aspiration. You know, like most advocates, I, I start with the briefs. I read the briefs and reread the briefs many, many times as I'm preparing, you read the cases, the statutes, all of the supporting material. But to me, the most important part of the preparation process really is, you know, not just the moot courts, but figuring out just how to orally articulate your position. And that it obviously happens first and foremost in, in practice sessions in moot courts. I, like most advocates, I try to do, you know, usually typically exactly two moot courts for Supreme Court arguments. I don't want to sound over-rehearsed, so I try hard not to do too many more than that, and I don't think I've ever gone into the Supreme Court without having done at least two. But one thing I do is I spend a lot of time essentially just talking to myself, really um, practicing answers, often in an empty conference room where I'm talking to myself. You know, I think there are a lot of oral advocates, particularly in my generation, who have a lot of experience with public speaking. It feels like the vast majority of the Supreme Court bar in my generation were former college or high school debaters, and that was definitely True. not me. Uh, I'm not somebody for whom public speaking at all comes naturally. And so I feel that I really need to sort of go through that exercise of just saying the things that I think I'm going to say. And, and that's not memorizing answers or coming up with rote formulations so much as it is just getting comfortable with articulating concepts and, and often very complex nuanced concepts. It's a lot harder to kind of uh, convey nuance in an oral argument than it is in a brief. And yet the last thing you want to do is to lose important nuance uh, when you're articulating your position and, and to be imprecise. And that's why I think practice is so important, because it's a way of kind of capturing that nuance, figuring out what formulations are orally the most persuasive. And, and I do a lot of that in the week or two before the oral argument. Another thing that's changed recently is that the court now has a practice of generally allowing the lawyers roughly two minutes of uninterrupted time 
at the beginning of the argument. So we're going to play the beginning of your argument from Oklahoma versus Castro Huerta, and then I want to ask you about oral arguments. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. This case presents a question that has taken on exceptional practical importance in the wake of McGirt. The question is whether a state has authority to prosecute non-Indians who commit crimes in Indian country, regardless of whether the victim is a non-Indian or an Indian. The answer to that question is yes. A state has inherent sovereign authority to punish crimes committed within its borders. And no federal law preempts that authority as to crimes committed by non-Indians. Respondent relies on two statutes, the General Crimes Act and Public Law 280. But neither of those statutes says anything about preemption. As this Court has explained, the General Crimes Act merely incorporates the substantive criminal law that applies in federal enclaves. It does not go further and address state jurisdiction. And as this Court has also explained, Public Law 280 simply expanded the criminal and civil jurisdiction of qualifying states. It did not somehow divest all states of pre-existing jurisdiction. The mere fact that some members of Congress may have believed that the states would otherwise have lacked jurisdiction over certain crimes does not give the law preemptive effect. Because this case does not implicate a tribe's right to govern itself and to punish tribal offenders, the Court need not resort to the more flexible balancing approach that it has used elsewhere. But here, any balancing weighs heavily in the state's favor. The state has a paramount interest in ensuring public safety. And concurrent state and federal jurisdiction would only enhance law enforcement in Indian country, especially because the tribes ordinarily lack jurisdiction over non-Indian offenders. The federal government now takes the position that it should have exclusive jurisdiction. But that position is simply mind-boggling in light of the situation in Oklahoma, where, by the government's own admission, whole categories of crimes are going unprosecuted in the aftermath of McGirt. Because no federal law preempts a state's authority to prosecute crimes committed by non-Indians, the judgment below should be reversed. I welcome the Court's questions. So I guess knowing now that the you know, you know when you go to the Supreme Court that the justices have read your briefs very closely, and you know that you're going to have two minutes to talk, how do you decide how to construct your opening argument? So I think there are three things that I try to do in the opening to any argument. And I think this was true even before the court started formally allocating two minutes to it. But now that you know that you have two minutes, that's a great luxury because it allows you really to kind of put this into practice. The first thing I do is to just make very clear what the case is about and what we're asking the court to do. And I often will start an oral argument by saying the question of this case is X and the answer to that question is Y. Because even though the court obviously knows what the case is about, you want to leave the court in no doubt as to what the legal rule is that you're asking them to adopt, what the disposition of the case should be. And so you want to make sure that you've got that somewhere right at the outset of your opening. The other thing that's really critical is sort of framing the terms of the debate. And so one of the issues that was at play in Castro Huerta was the question of whether or not this should be thought of as a more traditional preemption question. And you will have heard from the opening that I very much framed it in those terms because I wanted the court from the outset to be thinking about the case in those terms. And so I think framing is very important. And I think that's often particularly important if you're the respondent and you want to reframe the case after the court has heard from the other side. And then the last and most obvious thing in some sense is that you want to get your key affirmative points into the opening so that you get them out there. And so that the court, when it starts questioning you, is thinking about those key points. And 
That is, you know, a very hard thing to do in two minutes, but in a minimum, you want to get the two or three key themes on the table before the questioning actually begins. Yeah, I mean, I guess compared to what you used to have, or, you know, you couldn't count on having more than 30 seconds, two minutes seems like a lot, but I imagine when you're trying to pack all of those things into it, it, it goes by very quickly. Yeah, it was a lot harder in the old days to get the affirmative points on the table. It, it, usually it was all you could do to say, you know, here's why the lower court got it right or got it wrong. And then it was off to the races. And so it is a great luxury to have the uninterrupted time. The oral arguments going on, what do you do when you have someone whose vote, you know, probably isn't in play, but they're just, you know, peppering you with questions and we're going to play a snippet from the Oklahoma case. And we're not going to play the whole thing because Justice Gorsuch questioned you for almost eight minutes. Uh, you know, just asking you question after question. So I'm going to play that and then ask you to answer. I think there were four things uh, in your question, Justice Gorsuch. At least. <laughs> Let me start with those four and feel free to add others. First, the tribal interest here. I think that this court consistently has defined the tribal interest as the interest in punishing tribal offenders. When engaging in balancing, the court has not defined that interest more broadly as an interest in protecting victims. That having been said, obviously we acknowledge the treaties are irrelevant. Then, well, I, I was going to. Our history is irrelevant. I, I, Oklahoma's history is irrelevant. I was going to come to the treaties, but let me say one last thing about the interest, which is that, of course, the tribes have an interest in protecting their members from criminal offenses. The state of Oklahoma likewise has an interest in protecting all of its citizens, including its tribal citizens, who in Oklahoma have been citizens of the state longer than anywhere else in the nation. But this Court has never recognized that that is sufficient, for instance, to justify tribal jurisdiction or else Oliphant and Duro, the decisions that hold the tribes ordinarily lack jurisdiction over offenses committed by non-members, would have come out the other way. Now, you also mentioned Public Law 280 and the treaties, and I want to come to both of those, because those are potential affirmative sources for preemption. And just to be clear so that we're talking about the same framework, I think the way that the Court would consider offenses committed by Indians is under some sort of balancing framework or some sort of framework that looked at whether the state law interfered with the tribal right to self-governance. Here, because that interest is not implicated, we think that the court should use a familiar approach to preemption because you're talking about you say it's state not, and you, federal You wisely say it's not implicated. And it's easy to say, but you have 200 years of history suggesting otherwise. And you have tribes before us saying otherwise. And you have former U.S. attorneys saying otherwise. What do we do about that? Well, I can't speak to why the tribes have taken the position that they have in this Council, it's easy enough to say that standing at the podium in Washington, D.C., but the history and the reality is, is, it should stare us all in the face. There's a reason why they've resisted jurisdiction over crimes against Indian victims. It's not, it's, it's not just a matter of being contumacious, is it? No, of course I'm not saying that they're being contumacious, but I would say, having spent some time in Oklahoma, that the law enforcement issues are very real. And as recently as earlier this week, you had the principal FBI agent in Oklahoma 
conceding that there are whole categories of crimes, by our estimation, thousands of crimes, that are going unprosecuted because the federal government, which has sole jurisdiction over this category of cases, simply has been unable to prosecute them. So uh, I always tell my associates that before any Supreme Court argument, I go into the argument with the hope that I can persuade all nine of the justices to vote in our favor, but with the expectation that I might be disappointed. I think that's the right way to think about a Supreme Court argument. You know, I've often heard people say that they go into the argument with the mindset that, like, these are the five justices whom I need to persuade. And I actually don't think about it in those terms. I certainly think about which justices are most likely to vote for us. But I think it's very important to go in with a mindset of respect and, and with the goal of trying to persuade. Now, sometimes it becomes reasonably clear that you're not going to succeed as to a particular justice. But at that point, I think there are you know, a couple of important things that you do as the advocate. You know, One of them is that you obviously have to stand up strongly for your position if a justice is saying something with which you disagree, whether you think the justice is perhaps, you know, overreading the law or not reading the law properly, or if the justice, you know, bakes in some assumption that you think is incorrect, you have to firmly but respectfully disagree with that. And I think there's a real art to that because you obviously don't want to come across as belligerent or obstreperous in doing that, but you, you know, you have to draw very clear lines around the points that are essential to your position. You know, that having been said, I think more often than not, when a justice is skeptical, it's not because they're saying something that's wrong. It's because they're saying something that you just think should not be dispositive of the outcome. You know, I think it's important to remember that when a case gets to the Supreme Court, it's typically because lower courts have disagreed about a legal issue. And almost by definition, that means that there are points to be made on both sides. And your goal as a Supreme Court advocate, I I think, is to basically say to the Supreme Court, that you should rule in our favor because of points one through four and despite points five through eight, and not rule for the other side because of points five through eight, despite points one through four. And so often what I try to do when I have a justice who seems to be hostile is basically to be saying to the rest of the court, look, I hear what this justice is saying, but notwithstanding these points, here's why you should still vote for us. And that's really a way of, I think, pivoting to the affirmative case. It's really a way of pivoting away from points five through eight and towards points one through four. And you really try to do that in a way that is, you know, respectful of the justice who is being hostile to your position and and often acknowledging those points, but yet attempting to say to the rest of the court, look, here's why that justice should end up in dissent. And I think there's a real delicacy around that, particularly when a justice is coming in you know, pretty hot with their questioning, which is is not an infrequent occurrence at the Supreme Court. Certainly not. Uh, What kind of questions do you think are the hardest ones to answer? So I think people often say that the answer to that is, is hypothetical questions. And I think I would put it slightly differently and say that it's questions that test the contours of your position. And often those can come in the form of a hypothetical, but often they don't. But I think particularly the Supreme Court is really always sitting there thinking about the next case. The Supreme Court is, you know, realizing that it is adopting a legal rule that is going to apply nationwide, um, not just to your client, and really thinking about what is this going to mean going forward. And I, I think you really have to try as much as you can to think that out 
in advance of the oral argument, because it's really hard in the hurly burly of an oral argument to make judgments about that on the fly. And often when you see advocates getting into trouble is when advocates are pretty clearly doing that and they haven't really thought through the implications of the yes or no answer to that question and then get into trouble when other justices test that. And so to me, that's really the key in the moot court process. And as you're coming up to an oral argument in the Supreme Court is thinking about, you know, what does this mean for a future case? And as, as has often been said, you know, saying that that is not this case is not going to be a satisfactory answer. What do you try to accomplish with your rebuttal? So I think that there are sort of two key things about a rebuttal. I think people often say, you know, that rebuttal sounded great. It was, you know, really impressive when in fact a rebuttal is not very effective. And the reason why I think that that's true is because it is so tempting in a rebuttal just to sort of tackle the low hanging fruit. And in any oral argument, an advocate is going to have pretty obvious vulnerabilities. But really what you want to be doing in a rebuttal is offering your best answers to the strongest points that the other side makes and not the weakest points. You know, as I said a minute ago, it's all about convincing the court that despite the strongest points on the other side, that the court should rule in your favor. And so what I really try to do is to kind of capture the strongest arguments that the other side has made and offer our very best responses to that. The other thing that I think is really critical in a rebuttal is to kind of leave the court with the reasons to rule in your favor. And it may not be your strongest technical legal arguments, but to really have the court walking out of there thinking, boy, that last point is really the reason why I shouldn't rule for the other side. I should rule for Mr. Shanmugam's client or whoever the, the petitioner is. And you know, sometimes that can be very hard to effectuate. One of the things about the Supreme Court is that unlike courts of appeals, it doesn't have you know, a clock counting down your time. And so when the Chief Justice says, you have four minutes remaining, you kind of have to guess what that means. And sometimes you stick the landing and sometimes you don't. Uh, one of the things that I was very happy with in the Castro Huerta oral argument was that, you know, I think I ended with, you know, our strongest point, which was that, you know, it would be a cruel irony, as I think I put it, if the court ruled in favor of respondent and the effect of the rule was to provide less protection to Native American victims of crime. And that was not something I had prepared. That was something that I came up with kind of on the fly when I was doing the rebuttal. But, but that to me was really kind of the essential reason to rule in favor of, of the state. And I was very glad to be able to end the oral argument on that point. My last question, what advice would you give to somebody who's arguing before the Supreme Court for the first time? It's really hard to follow this advice, but um, you just have to avoid being overwhelmed by the sense of occasion. And the setting of the Supreme Court doesn't help because you walk into that courtroom and it's hard to imagine a more grand or intimidating setting than to walk into this giant, um, very impressive courtroom. And I think to the extent that you can, if you can treat it like an argument in any other appellate court, that's really the right way to think about it in, in some respects. And I think it, it, it ceases to be quite as, as daunting if you think about it that way. 
But I would also give just the fundamental piece of advice that a former colleague of mine who's now a judge gave me before my first oral argument. You know, your key task is to answer the questions. We can talk a lot about the strategy and the kind of next level aspects to arguing before the Supreme Court. But if you give your clients very best answers to every single question that you get, you're going to be doing a pretty darn good job. And, and that is the first and foremost role of any advocate in the Supreme Court or in our court system more generally is to address the points that are on the justices' minds straight up to the best of your abilities. And, and again, if you do that, you've done a very effective job for your client. All right. Ken and Shane McGam, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Amy. That's another episode of SCOTUS Talk. Thanks for joining us. And thanks to our production team, Katie Barlow, Eleanor Erskine, Angie Goh, and James Ramoser.